0: hello everybody and welcome to surviving history the number one podcast in the world that covers how humanity never learns from its history i am here with ani charlasian also known as mom Uh, the reason i have chosen ani as my guest today is in addition to being an expert on my history and my family's history she's also an expert on the subject matter that we will be discussing today And the subject is the Armenian Genocide and its consequences for the Armenian people, as well as my own family. Since this podcast is best known for tying history and our inability as humans to learn from our history, we will tie the historical facts of the Armenian Genocide to the repetition and continuation of the genocide today. So Ani, tell us a little bit about yourself besides being
1: my mom. What else do you do? Hello, Sarhad, and thank you for having me as your guest on the podcast today. Um, This is a very important subject, um, uh, but before we go into that, uh, I'm a banker by day, uh, your mom full-time, and uh, I'm also uh, an active member of the Armenian American community. I do a lot of advocacy work on Capitol Hill. Uh, I work with congressmen and senators. I represent the Armenian-American community in the context of policy towards Armenia and so on and so forth. And I make our voices heard uh, to our government in Washington.
0: Okay, so give us a little bit of background on the genocide, what happened during the genocide, what played out in it. Tell us a little bit about the genocide.
1: Ah, it's, a, it's a difficult history. Um, it's one that is um, uh, one of the least known, yet one of the most tragic uh, episodes in human history. It was the first genocide of the 20th century. The genocide took place from 1915 to 1923, so it spanned throughout the First World War. It happened under the cover of the First World War. It was a genocide committed by the Ottoman government uh, against the Armenian people who lived within the Ottoman Empire. In the beginning uh, of this period, there were two million Armenians who lived in the Ottoman Empire. By the end of the Armenian Genocide, uh, there were less than um, uh, half a million people who lived in uh, the Ottoman Empire or what became the Republic of Turkey. Um, And uh, the other million and a half perished in the genocide at the hands of the Ottoman government. Uh, This is something that is... um, Uh, very difficult to talk about for the Armenian people. Every single Armenian family who lives in the diaspora, meaning outside of Armenia, uh, every single one of us is tied to this history. Every single one of us lives in other countries here in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, in South America, even as far as China and Australia. Uh, All these families are spread all over the world because uh, someone from their family managed to survive the Armenian genocide and ended up spread all over the world like seeds.
0: Wow. It's um, a very difficult topic to talk about. So how would this tie into our own family history?
1: Uh, so uh, both of my uh, sets of grandparents were survivors of the genocide. We come from a village called Kilis, um, which is very close to what is today modern-day Syria. Uh, it's on the Turkish side of the border. However, it, it, it's very, very close to the modern uh, borders of uh, the country of Syria. So my grandparents were both driven uh, from their homes. They were very young children. Uh, they were driven from their homes and one of the interesting histories um that is uh both uh you know tragic as well as a little bit comical is that during during these death marches so the genocide was conducted through various means first outright massacres uh right at the location of where people lived uh but for the most part most of the genocide was committed by driving people to walk through deserts uh, hundreds of miles without food, without water, and oftentimes without clothing. Uh, and they were called death marches, of course. And during these death marches, many, many people perished. Most of the genocide was committed through these means. Uh, I'm not going to go into more graphic details about the genocide uh, because of the age group uh, of your podcast audience. Um, but I have to say it was it was quite brutal and quite tragic. Um My uh, grandparents were subject to uh, this same uh, tragedy, and they were driven to the Syrian desert uh, to walk uh, without shoes, without water, and what have you. So one of the ways that families tried to uh, survive or try to have their children survive, if it looked like they themselves were going to perish, were they would marry their children off to each other on these death marches, so that in case the parents perished which did happen to my to my parents to my grandparents uh that at least the children would have someone they can rely on and this was the case on the on my maternal side of the family where my uh grandfather and grandmother were married to each other on these death marches now you say married to each other we're not talking about a marriage ceremony and renting a you know a beautiful hall with what have you this literally happened in the desert as they were marching, um, you know, starving and, uh, and being thirsty. So my grandmother was married off to my grandfather. Uh, they were both 12 years old. Uh, in the context of a 12-year-old, as you can imagine, marriage isn't what it is between two adults. Um, and so my grandmother, not wanting to have any part of this marriage, uh every night uh when they stopped the death march somewhere she would find a hiding place and uh, a lot of times the hiding place would be up in trees or hiding behind bushes so this new bride at the age of 12 would lit- literally spent the first 3 nights 3 months of her marriage hiding from her so-called husband
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a little uh little comical yeah. okay so the next topic that is also not very widely known and sadly not a lot of people know about it is the situation in Artsakh and Armenia right now. Could you also give us a little overview about that?
1: So first I think we need to cover what Artsakh is. We just spoke about Armenian history. Artsakh is um, historically Armenian uh, territory. It's been part of the Armenian homeland for over 3,000 years Uh, Artsakh is one of the cultural centers uh, throughout Armenian history. Artsakh is the place where Armenians had their first university. Um, And uh, what's happening there today is a repetition of what happened to our nation back in the First World War. So Artsakh became part of, um, Artsakh was forcefully placed under Azerbaijani uh, control by Stalin during the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, And uh, the next 70 years, uh, Azerbaijan, as you know, is also a Turkic country, very much a brethren of Turkey. Uh, They have very close ties. They believe in the same type of uh, philosophy, uh, and their philosophy centers on um, uh, basically... Uh, getting rid of Armenians from their homeland, whether that's Armenia proper or Artsakh. Uh, so over seventy years of Soviet rule, when Azerbaijan, uh, was given control over Artsakh, uh, they tried to depopulate the the Armenian uh, people from Artsakh, the Armenian people who had been there for three thousand years, as I said before. Mm. Um, they were not uh, successful in doing so because Artsakh, as uh, many of your audience might not know, is a very, very mountainous region. It's very difficult to remove mountain people from their mountains. It's hard to find them. It's hard to push them out. Um, And as a result, the Artsakh Armenians survived on their land for 70 years. Uh, 70 years later, um, as they are freedom-loving people, uh, they held a referendum and decided that they wanted to be free uh, and their own independent nation. So since 1994, to uh, the um, violence against Artsakh by Azerbaijan in 2020, uh, Artsakh functioned as an independent republic. It was the most democratic uh, former uh, territory uh, in the Soviet Union. It had some of the cleanest uh, elections. It, literally, it was a gem of a democracy. In 2020, Azerbaijan attacked, brutally attacked Artsakh, um, and uh, basically uh, now occupies 70% of Artsakh territory. Uh, what is tragic about that is that they have determined and declared publicly. The dictator who runs Azerbaijan, um, Aleyev, has declared that uh, Artsakh uh, is part of Azerbaijan and Armenians should not live in, in Artsakh. Armenians have no place in Azerbaijan. And now they're in the process of trying to starve out the people of Artsakh from their territory. There's currently only one road that that, um, as a result of, of the war in 2020, there's currently one road that ties Artsakh to Armenia. And this is the 29th day that Artsakh has now blockaded that road. They've cut off gas to the people of Artsakh. They've cut off the electricity. They cut it off. They leave it off for days uh, at a time. Then they turn it back on and they turn it back off. But the the worst part of it is that for 30 days now, no medicine or food has gone into Artsakh. So it's completely cut off from the rest of the world. There are 120,000 people, including women, children, disabled, and elderly, who are now living without food and water, uh, without electricity, and oftentimes without gas to warm their homes in the middle of the winter. It's basically a second siege on the Armenian people, and it's a a way of, um, it basically, uh, it's the second genocide of the Armenian nation.
0: These are unimaginably tragic situations that Armenia and Artsakh are living in and the people of the indigenous people of that land that has to suffer. Um, What are some potential solutions or fixes or ways that we could work towards uh, bettering the situation and rebuilding Armenia and Artsakh as a whole?
1: Those are very big questions. So I'd had very, very big questions. Um, the answers are difficult uh, and they're long. Uh, perhaps we could discuss some of those in more detail uh, in, in later podcasts. However, uh, immediately, what must immediately be done is the government of the United States, uh, which is the um, basically, uh, you know, the nation that, Um, is the proudest of its democracy. It's a nation whose basis is based on self-determination and the right of a people to live freely in their own land, to practice their religion, to practice their culture, This nation, our United States, a nation we're very proud of and we're citizens of, must immediately, immediately put pressure on Azerbaijan to open that road so that humanitarian aid can get to those 120,000 people, so that medicine and food can get to those people. It's incumbent upon us as citizens of the United States to pressure our own government to say, you must take this seriously. You cannot sit by and watch you the United States government cannot as you did in the Second World War watch the Holocaust happen and then afterwards say wow what a terrible tragedy you can now now watch another genocide take place
0: um now moving on what's your perspective on propaganda in different countries and what and like what do countries preach are they true or are they false do they take the side of a winning country? Do they take the side of the richer country? What is the situation in propaganda and what news outlets put out to their people?
1: So those are a lot of questions that um, are loosely uh, connected. Uh, propaganda is something that governments put out if they're trying to get some messaging out. I think in the context of the U.S. government, there's not necessarily propaganda related to Artsakh. I think that there's a general Um, uh, ignoring of the situation of the Armenian people in Artsakh, uh, which perhaps is worse than propaganda uh, because they're watching uh, all these people uh, starve to death and not doing something about it. Um, And then the context of, you know, uh, what countries who they side with and what have you. The United States is a beacon for democracy. It's a beacon for freedom-loving people. Uh, and uh, the United States has the high moral ground as it relates to those issues. And the United States cannot cannot sit idly by and watch a democratic, freedom-loving nation uh, starve to death and be killed. Um However, the United States, for uh, unknown reasons or unreasonable reasons, has chosen to remain silent on this issue. Um, you know, because you're, the topic of your podcasts are often history, uh, Sarhad, it's important to note that uh, history is always written by the winner. It's never written by the losers, because the losers are often killed and they, they don't have a voice. Um And for us, it's important that we don't allow that to happen in this case, which is why the Armenian-American community uh, is so vocal about this issue. Uh, News outlets are ignoring us. Uh, News outlets are not paying attention uh, for various reasons, perhaps because um, it's too small, perhaps because people aren't interested in other people's plights. Um, it's a sad situation, and unfortunately, news media today is driven by the advertising dollars they can garner uh, in putting out news as opposed to really covering what's happening in the world today. And I think that's another tragedy of the modern world where uh, people's attention spans are so short uh, that they prefer to to get snippets as opposed to full information on a topic. And this topic is complicated. It's difficult. It's hard to watch. It's hard to listen to. And as a result, um, I believe news media refuses to cover it.
0: So one of the uh things you said i caught on to is you said you it might be potentially worse that countries and news outlets and whatever not are ignoring our situation rather than propagating it in a a negative way do you think it's better what is better is it like do you feel that uh do you feel that ignoring it is worse or saying lies about it or speaking f- speaking from the news source, taking the side of, for example, Turkey saying that, oh, Artsakh started at the beginning. It wasn't our fault. They began the war. We're just fighting to keep our own. What do you think is worse, ignoring it or the other?
1: So um, I think neither is good. I think ignoring... Um, an impending genocide, uh, sitting on the sideline and pretending like, uh, you know, the starvation of 120 people or the killing and the targeting of children and women is not happening, is terrible. I think um, pretending like uh and this happens with the U.S. government as well, when they do make an announcement about this issue, they always say, oh, both sides should calm down and come to the table, when in reality, um, both sides includes the aggressor and the people against whom the aggression is taking place. So it's really not both sides, it's one side. Um, So whether they ignore it or they approach the issue as if... um, Both sides are guilty or that uh, the victim is just as guilty as the perpetrator of the genocide. Uh, At the end of the day, does it really matter which one is worse? Because it gets us to the same place where these people die and we sit by and we watch.
0: Good answer. Um, Now, we say we live in a free country, freedom of speech. But our news sources preach a very, from a very distinct point of view in theory and like influencing people. What do you think about how news sources and the government influences the news that reaches our households
1: in America? That's a very deep question for someone your age, Sarhad. So yes, uh, it's amazing that you've noticed uh, that the news media does have perspective. Now, there is an entire spectrum of news media, right? Today, I think news media can be broken down between traditional media, which uh, used to only be print media, which was newspapers, the physical newspapers that, for example, my generation grew up with. Then there's the um, media that was on TV, you know, the the evening news that a lot of my generation grew up with, where, uh, you know, an anchor would come up uh, every day and at six o'clock or seven o'clock, sit down and read through the news for, uh, for America to watch. Uh, but I think today, uh, news is digested and produced in various different, uh, in def- various different ways. I think because of social media, social media platforms, news has become less about information and more about snippets uh, and little messaging that is easily digestible by people. It's, I think, produced uh, and is producing, particularly in your generation and a generation of people. Who don't delve deep into an issue, don't really understand an issue, don't really have the patience to fully investigate an issue, but they just want sound bites. And through sound bites, they believe that they've understood an issue. That's very, very dangerous and it's very tragic. Uh, and I hope that um, instead of succumbing to this, you and your colleagues of your generation find a way uh, to use social media. Uh, responsibly, so that you're actually getting real news out, so that the news that you're putting out there and the ways in which you use um, social media platforms, which is uh, the way that most people get their news today, um, is uh, is used to protect the. Uh, the underdog is used to protect the victim, is used to speak on behalf of the victim, as opposed to falling victim to propaganda yourselves, which is what is being fed to you on social media. Uh, Understanding the world you live in today through just a couple of little snippets, a couple of words that are printed or not having enough patience to actually read through an article or read through a book that describes a tragedy or a historical moment in time, uh, is doing yourselves personally and your generation a great, great disservice.
0: In fact, funny funny enough, you brought that up. Um, the other day I was reading an article about uh, attention spans of the average adult today and average human being today the average attention span of an adult today is less than a goldfish so when you say people don't have the patience to read through an article or investigate more into a topic that is directly correlated to the new social media outlets that come out tiktok instagram where you scroll quickly a video is like maximum seven seconds long uh where you Don't put the time in to look at the subsequent videos or thinking about the subsequent articles or whatever not. You just read quickly, look over the topic and say, oh, I know enough about this to have a complete understanding and have a firm grasp and standing on what I believe in it.
1: Yes, and if you bring that back to uh, the topic uh, about the Armenian genocide and the genocide against the Armenian people today in Artsakh, uh, you'll understand why. Uh, come back, coming back to your question. Now you've answered your own question basically, which is why isn't why isn't uh, the media paying attention to this? Um, Genocide. Why isn't the media talking about the fact that there are women and children and the elderly starving in a nation today? Why isn't uh, anyone paying attention? You know why? Because it's this topic is not easily digestible in sound bites. It's not easily digestible in seven-second-long um, uh, videos. It's not easily digestible through uh, through you know uh, fifteen words on Twitter. And as a result, um, now uh, we as humanity are sitting back and watching a genocide that's about to take place and doing absolutely nothing about it.
0: Thank you for being here today. Um, Thank you to all the listeners, all the people who are tuning in to listen to this great podcast and the one podcast in the world. Um, And I will sum it up by saying history repeats itself and we watch catastrophe happen we watch man's inhumanity against man and we do nothing and then years later we commemorate this violence and vow that it will never happen again yet it does and again we watch thank you